Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage... All the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And Rory, I think the single biggest issue that was raised this week was the B word, Brexit, in two parts. One, the effects of Brexit, but also a lot of questions about Labour's position. Nick Simpson, Starmer seems to be really doubling down on being against free movement, single market. Does he really believe this? Why is his position hardened? Is this good politics or is he going too far? Richie G, given the raft of evidence emerging about the negative effects of Brexit, when do you think public discourse may move on to the potential for another referendum? Uh, honestly, we had loads of these. Then Adol, first Australia, now Japan, both mirages of trade deals. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. And it's all, you know, I do really think, Roy, that the public are ahead of the politicians on this. I really do. Well, there's definitely definitely a big shift going on, isn't there? I mean, we, we can now see a more consistent picture in the opinion polls of people beginning to say that Brexit is a mistake, um, which wasn't true in the early days. I mean, I, I think the Remain campaigners kept hoping in the early days that they could show dramatic examples of people who'd voted Brexit who changed their mind, but more and more of those examples now emerging. And of course, as we face two types of crisis, one of them an economic crisis and the other the security crisis from Russia, Ukraine, there will be more and more pressure to say that Europe represents that the region we have most in common with economically, in terms of our values, in terms of our security interests. And when you're trying to solve for the two big things, the breakdown of the global order and the collapse of the British economy, the European Union seems like a, a much stronger answer than it might have seemed for voters in 2016 who lived in a much more complacent era where they thought that trade with China was a pretty uncomplicated growth story and where they didn't have to worry about internal mm. security in Europe. Yeah. I mean, I look, the, I'm hoping that what Labour are doing, as I said on the main podcast, is just sort of avoiding big traps. But I almost got the feeling over the weekend that you had a sense that the government is beginning to understand that they're going to have to revisit some of this stuff. They still haven't fixed the Northern Ireland Protocol. There are still sort of massive barriers to trade that uh, they appear to be doing nothing to try to bring down. Whereas Keir's line is very, very hard line. And I think there does come a point where there are some, I know that he's, you know, this is very much focused on 
on people who maybe are fed up with the government, but also would be very, very upset if, if Labour tried to kind of undo the Brexit situation. But, you know, ultimately, when we're talking about an economy that's getting hit by 4% year on year, and I don't know if you saw Jeremy Hunt being interviewed by Beth Rigby on Sky News. And, you know, so I'm often critical of our interviewers because they let the politicians away with murder. She did not let him go. She just pinned him. And eventually he got very, very, very stroppy about being asked the same question. Beth is a ferocious interviewer. I mean, she was incredibly tough with Boris Johnson. I mean, she was one of the most effective interviews with him. Um, incidentally, I'm not certain it's 4% year on year. Normally, the calculations are 4% over an extended time period. But just on, on Keir Starmer, one of the things that we did pick up in some of the Twitter questions is the question around his values. Remember, he was Jeremy Corbyn's shadow Brexit spokesman. And he very much presented himself in the House of Commons at that period as somebody who wouldn't compromise with a soft Theresa May deal because he was pushing, essentially seen for a kind of single market customs union solution. And at the same time, probably flirting with people like you by suggesting he was in favor of a second referendum and that maybe if he could kill Theresa May's deal, he could get a second referendum. And he seems to have abandoned that entirely instead of what I would have thought would be consistent, which is saying, I was a passionate Remainer. I remain very firmly of the view that Britain's interests lie in being closer to Europe. I may think we shouldn't have a referendum again, but I definitely will be pushing for a closer diplomatic, economic, political relations with Europe. He's going the other way. And, and that is a bit odd, isn't it, given mm. that it was so central to his brand? Well, I think it's, but I think it's because he's, he's concerned that the Conservatives are going to portray him as being determined to take us back into the European Union, come what may. But I, th I just don't think that flies with the public because I don't think they, I think it's such a sort of inside the Westminster bubble point. I mean, how many people really remember what Keir Starmer's position was on Brexit? Not that many outside Westminster. And so I think he's far better to say, look, we are in a complete mess. Our economy is tanking. The country is going in the wrong direction. I agree with you. He, he could say we are not revisiting the basic question about membership of the European Union, but we have to fix this deal and we have to get better trade and relations with the European Union. He could definitely say that. Instead of which, it goes back to the point I made on the main podcast about Labour saying what they're not for rather than what they are. Instead of which we're getting, you know, we're not doing the single market, we're not doing customs union, freedom of movement is a red line. Uh, we need more British workers for British jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The public's way ahead of them on this. In 2018, when people like me were getting very frustrated with Keir Starmer, because, you know, remember there was a moment when Theresa May had essentially lost most of the Tory party and in desperation reached out to Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer, mm. try to get a deal across the line. He set these six tests on Brexit. Mm. And maybe it's a good way of thinking about Brexit. I mean, these were quite thoughtful ways of thinking about the issue. So he asked, does it ensure a strong and collaborative future relationship with the EU? Does it deliver exactly the same benefits as we currently have as members of the Single Market and Customs Union? Does it ensure the fair management of migration? Does it defend rights and protections, prevent a race to the bottom? Does it protect national security? Does it deliver for all regions and nations of the UK? And you would have thought he could return to those at the very least, as a way of making an argument for a much closer relationship with yeah. Europe without necessarily reopening I, I, fi I find increasingly few people who are willing to tell me there's any benefit to what we've done. Um, and yet you've got both main parties essentially saying it can't be revisited. It's, it's, it's fantasy land. Really okay, is. now quest question for you. I'm conscious you ask a lot of questions. And, and as you say, I give two long answers. So Angela Neuberger, 
I'd assume that it would be very tough for Labour to win a general election without getting more seats back in Scotland. What's the electoral mass on this? Will Nicola Sturgeon's threat to turn the next election into a vote on independence help Labour or Tories or both? So Labour in Scotland run by Anna Sawa, where do you see their future and their importance for the Labour Party at the next election? Well, there are two things, I think, to to say about this. The first is that the, the SNP are still very, very dominant in Scotland, no doubt about that. I think the thing that has stopped a lot of people who might be minded to vote Labour from doing so is because in recent years, they haven't thought there's a hope in hell's chance of Labour actually winning a majority. And therefore, they've been, the SNP have been able to corral people essentially to be saying, look, vote for the SNP because that's the way you're going to get Scotland's voice heard more strongly in Scotland. I think the more that it seems like Labour might win a majority, then I think you will get moderate SNP supporters. In other words, people whose defining issue is not necessarily independence, but just the fact that they prefer the SNP to the other parties. I think there's a chance for Labour to bring those over. I do think she's taking a risk in in saying that the next general election is is a, a referendum on independence, because you know the fact is that there's a lot, just as a lot going wrong in our economy, there's a lot going wrong in, in when I say our economy, I mean the national economy, UK. There's a, there's a lot going wrong in Scotland in terms of public services and so forth. And, you know, if it looks like she's doing this as a way of avoiding the things that people actually tend to want to, to debate and see debated at general election, I can see that playing against her and for Labour. And for, for listeners, just to remind people how odd what happened to Labour in Scotland was. So Labour was the first party in Scotland almost continuously from the 1920s and certainly from the, certainly from the late 50s. And it didn't really, from the early 60s, drop below 40 seats out of 71. Mm. Uh, the, the number of seats were reduced later, but still kept 40 seats out of 59 as late as 2010. So almost every year, every election, 41, 50, 49, even 56 seats in, in the early Tony Blair days. Mm. And then suddenly in 2015, in five years, went from 41 seats in Scotland to one seat, lost I mean, I don't know what that is, lost 90% of their seats, uh, crept up in 2017 to seven seats and then collapsed. Why are you reminding me of this? I, I, I know well, all this, it, it's, amazing, it's, it's just the mo- most astonishing <laughs> thing, isn't it? And then collapsed it again in 2019 to one, one seat. Yeah. But listen, how many, how many, here's one for you. You, you sent a very interesting article that had been written by Sam Friedman about this thing of nimbies and yimbies, not in my backyard and young people who want things in their backyard, like, you know, houses to live in. When you look at how few seats the Conservatives now have in big cities, I mean, is, is, isn't it possible that the Conservatives, particularly if they carry on with this kind of, you know, nimbyism at the heart of their planning approach to planning and housing and so forth, and onshore wind farms, the other one that's becoming in now is a great sort of, you know, nimbies v yimbies. I like that one, Nimby v Yimby. Thank you for sending that. <laughs> but isn't, isn't it possible that the Conservatives could see something similar happening to them in places where they used to be strong? Well, th- this, this is, of course, what, what the Conservative Party has been terrified of now for, for 10, 15 years. So Margaret Thatcher rebuilt the Conservative Party brand partly by getting people on the housing ladder, partly through this policy of allowing people to buy their council houses, which turned millions of people into owners and gave them a capital asset, which became very important. Big part of the housing problem we've got now, Rory. Big part of the housing problem we've got now, but incredibly successful politics yeah. and, and actually incredibly beneficial for many of the families that were able to buy their houses. It totally mm. transformed 
their assets totally transform their financial futures, which is why she picks up an enormous number of voters by doing it. And since that time, housing prices have rocketed. More and more people have begun treating their house as an asset. And we're now in a situation in which it is almost impossible and has been for 15, 20 years for a young person to get, as it were, on the housing ladder. And most of the policies that the conservative governments have pursued since 2010 haven't fixed this. They've done things such as to try to subsidize mortgages, which seem in many cases just in normal economic terms, just have driven the prices up further. Mm. They tried to address it um, by building programs that didn't work. They never met their housing targets. There's a lot of nostalgia for Harold Macmillan, who built you know millions of those uh, houses back in the 50s. And at the heart of the problem seems to be our planning system. It's very difficult to get planning permission. Development land is very expensive. There's a lot of cases, although the, the property development companies deny it, of land banking, in other words, holding back land that they could develop and aren't developing. And this means that particularly young people and people in cities feel that they're never going to be able to own a house. And the Conservative Party has been trying since 2010, or factions within it, Gavin Barwell, for example, who was Theresa May chief of staff, was an influential housing minister, trying to argue that the only way that Conservatives will manage to win back younger voters and working class voters is if they start allowing houses to be built. And certainly mm. this nimbyism is blocking that. And I, I see it's given rise to yet another of these marvellous names that they give themselves. We've had the European Research Group, which has done so much damage to the, to the country and its economy and its standing in the world. And th these guys call themselves the, is it the Planning Concern Group or the Housing Concern Group? Most of these Tory groups, it seems to me that you have to think of the opposite of what they're saying. Yeah, that, well, in, in that, in that case... In, in that case, that's Theresa Villiers, who um, played a very big part in wrecking over Brexit, who's actually essentially driven a rebellion against the government's attempt to try to bring a bill in that would have made housing easier, has led a sort of NIMBY rebellion. And it shows a big fracture again in the Conservative Party and a big problem mm -hmm. for Rishi Sunak's leadership that somebody like Theresa Villiers can do that. And we've also had um, both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss supporting amendment to try to force a change on the opposition to onshore wind farms as well. Extraordinary. Now, here's a question for you. How does a normal person become an MP? question around normal person is very interesting. So there've been some comments about the fact that there are many more university graduates in the House of Commons than there are in the population as a whole. I think sort of nearly 80% of MPs university graduates with less than 50% of the population. But Jessica Coates is coming from a different direction. She says, I've been reflecting on Francois Hollande's observation that increasingly few educated people are choosing political careers. My Cambridge educated friends and I all went straight into private sector careers without much thought. Mm. Now having achieved financial security, many of us are considering a career in politics. But without parents involved in the political circuit, it seems difficult. So how does a, inverted commas, normal person, which in her case seems to be actually, you could call a wealthy, educated person, go about becoming an MP? What do you make of all that? Well, obviously, when it comes out next year, she'll have to get my book, But What Do I Do? How to Fix Politics. You know, we were talking about Johnny Mercer. When he decided to become an MP, he just went and found a seat and he just sort of went around knocking on doors and he got, he sort of barged his way in. It, I think not, not, well, let, let me, let me come in on this because he still needed to be uh, approved by his local party. I mean, that's the big choke yeah, point. Yeah, correct. Yeah. But he sort of, he, but he didn't find it that difficult. Now, listen, I know for most people it's incredibly difficult. More, far more people. I know lots of people at the moment who are trying to go for 
selection as Labour candidates, there are way more want to do it than there are places. It's about who you know. It's about how you get on with them. But I think the other thing you have to do, Jessica, if, if you if you want to do this, I'm afraid you do have to kind of you, you have to work out the power structures. You have to go and find the people that and then you have to make an impression on them. And even then you might not win. That's the other thing you have to accept, um, because a lot of people do want to be MPs. It's just that a lot of them really, you know, I don't think we're getting the brightest and the best necessarily who want to do it. Although I have been impressed by some of the, the new candidates that I've seen and by some of the people. I met a guy last week who's 27, trying to get a seat. And honestly, if I were the Labour Party, I'd just, I'd just move heaven and earth to get him. He's really smart, really bright. I think we need a lot of younger people in there. How do you weigh up this question of, on the one hand, people saying MPs need more qualifications, more experience to the outside world? And how do you balance that against another argument which says that the House of Commons should fully reflect the diversity of the country? In other words, if less than half the people in the country have a university degree, less than half MPs should have a university degree. No, I don't, I don't buy the idea. I don't, I don't worry about whether it sort of accurately reflects the whole of the country. I think it'd be great if it looked a little bit more like the country than the House of Commons does now. You know, sometimes you look at Prime Minister's questions and you look at the Tory benches in particular and you just see these sort of white men in suits and you whoa, think... Whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry, let me push back hard on that. Why? The Conservatives have had far more minority ethnic secretaries say you didn't have a single one when Labour was in, not a single. No, we've talked about the Cabinet. No, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm saying sometimes, that this, this may be just the sort of the way that the, seat, the ones who get in to get the seats, sometimes you look at the Tory benches and you really struggle to see anything other than white. Look at the Tory honestly. front bench. You see something that's actually yes, more you might do. Look, Rory, Rory, I've, I have noticed, Rory, since Boris Johnson departed, you've become much more defensive about the Conservative Party. That's fine. Well, uh, only that's only when you say things which are not fully nuanced and reflecting <laughs> no, on no, Labour's but, flaws in this. Why has Labour so catastrophically failed to get more diversity into its front benches? We can name names. I can point to that wonderful chap from Slough who's brilliant every time I see him on social media. We can point to David Lammy. We can point to all sorts of people. But the point the point we're making, on what point was I making, Rory? I forgot. <laughs> I think you were trying to talk about whether the House of Commons was representative. And then for some reason, you decided to choose the Conservative Party. Yeah. No, yeah. I'll tell you what, the other thing I think we've got to understand is that, so for example, I, I got into a ferocious row the other day with somebody at a, a dinner I was speaking at. Because he was going on about, you know, trouble is these politicians, they're all the same and the usual stuff that you get fed up of hearing. And I was sort of pushing back on that. He actually said this, I don't want people like Angela Rayner in, in a government. I said, what do you mean people like Angela Rayner? He said, well, you know, the way she speaks. I said, what do you mean, what do you mean the way she speaks? And it was like, and what it was, was a sort of, on the one hand, I want politicians to be more normal and more like us. On the other hand, the minute they are, I want to say that they're not fit for the job. And I got really, because I thought that was just a sort of basic kind of snobbery. Yeah. I think there is still snobbery about it. Coming out of my defensive crouch for a moment, th this yeah. question of qualifications, experience, diversity is very personal to me. I mean, obviously, I'm the epitome of somebody who's not representative. I'm an old Etonian, middle-aged white guy. But I found with constituents that there's a difficult thing to resolve. On the one hand, people felt in Cumbria, what on earth are we doing with this person as RMP because he's not like us? On the other hand, other people thought, well, you know, he's written books, he's worked abroad, he's had some quite interesting experiences. We think he might be quite good at being a minister. Maybe he'd be quite suited to be a foreign minister or a different minister. Maybe he'd manage things. He's run NGOs in difficult places. Maybe he'd be okay at running the prison system. So 
it's a very odd kind of job interview because it, it it's not as simple as it would be in another job as saying you're just looking no. at somebody's qualifications and how good they are at running a department. You're also- no, and I, listen, I, the thing I lament about the state of our, we, you know, we talked about on the main podcast about how few politicians now make sort of really big, serious speeches. I want at least a good 20% of our MPs to be really smart, really special, People, whether they're Labour or Tory or SNP or Lib Dem or Green or Plaid, I don't care. I just want people who I think, I really want to hear what they think. I've got to be honest, Rory, when most of the cabinet and quite a few of the shadow cabinet come onto the television and the radio, I kind of know what they're going to say before they've said it because I've worked out what the government and the opposition lines on something are. I want people who are going to say interesting things and give me interesting analysis of the world. And what's, what, what about the other 80%? I'd like them to be competent. I'd like them to have good values. I'd like them to be good local MPs and, and, and some of them to develop into to something better. But I just feel, I feel we're probably going in the wrong direction. Ask me another question, Rory. The answers are getting too long ago. Okay, well, we, we go, well let's go into the break and I'll ask you a question straight after the break. <laughs> you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course... Who killed Liz Truss? Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Rory, we've got, you know, one of the, one of the benefits, I guess, of being a popular chart-topping podcast is that we get lots of people want to advertise and sponsor and so forth. And we've enjoyed the the benefits of the sponsorship of Airbnb. And quite a few of our listeners have suggested that actually they don't see Airbnb as the force for good that you do. So I'm now going to put you on the spot and say to you, defend them. Well, firstly, what, what, what is it that's troubling people? I mean, I, I don't really, tell, tell me firstly what, because I, I see Airbnb as a very positive force. I mean, I think it's Fantastic way of bringing in extra incomes. And remember, we're talking about a housing crisis and difficult for people to find accommodation. And I think anything that makes it easier for people to use unused rooms or unused property to let other people use them is a good thing. Otherwise, it just mm. sits empty and unused. I get the, the, the criticisms that we, we seem to be getting is that they're actually having the opposite effect, that they're, they're, they're adding to a housing problem. They're adding to difficulties with tourism that are facing some of our Coastal and rural uh, well, so parts I, of the country I guess, in particular. I guess one of the, I, I mean, obviously this is relevant to Cumbria, where there was a lot of anxiety around second homeowners and holiday homes and holiday cottages. And it's definitely true that second homes, which are empty, unused, are not a contribution to the community and can lead to hollowed out communities. But by definition, Airbnb is putting things to use. There are people in the building, so it's not a question of empty second homes. It's a very good source of secondary income, for example, for farming families. And in fact, the Labour government had a very good scheme, which I supported, of giving grants to farming families to set up little accommodation units for holiday lets. And you know, most Airbnb, it's not true of everyone, but I think four-fifths of them 
are people renting out properties for something like a couple of days a month. I stayed in one in London recently where the lady has her family and her children staying in her basement most of the time, but just occasionally will rent it out, which takes pressure off other people. So I, I think, look, a lot of these things, Airbnb, Uber, et cetera, have problems of credit controversy. Mm. But the basic idea that technology is being used to open up opportunities makes sense. And it's, it's simply doing more efficiently what's always existed, which is giving people the mm. capacity to rent out their, their rooms. Okay, now we've got quite a lot of questions on partisan politics. Um, Colin Sinfield, as you two can hold a civil argument and beg to differ on the details, why could running the country not be structured like this? That is government and opposition agreeing basic provision for things like health, education, housing, and then establishing the difference in the election. And this, I got this at the dinner that I was talking about where somebody was rude about Angela Rayner, somebody saying, you know, why can't we take the politics out of schools and hospitals? And the answer is because... <laughs> <laughs> they are amongst the most passionate issues that you're going to get in politics. Now, I think it's easy to say, let's be more civil with each other. That shouldn't be too difficult. But what do you think of that? Did you ever think in the House of Commons that the, there was a, a less political well, way of doing politics? There were definitely times when I felt that. I mean, I did feel during Brexit that we should have locked the MPs in the House of Commons. You know, more than 400 of them claimed that they were in favour of a soft compromise on Brexit. I would have liked to lock the mm. doors and make them come to a compromise and not let them out again, like cardinals electing a pope. Mm. till they'd come up with a solution. I definitely feel on adult social care, which is the big, remains the big central shame of British politics that hasn't been fixed since the Second World War, that you should get a cross-party coalition. And it's horrible the way that the Conservatives, every time that Labour brought a proposal together on trying to fund it, would go into death tax attacks. And then Labour did mm. the same to Theresa May when she came up with a good, could have been a good cross-party proposal on adult social care, they did a dementia tax. We're going to get the same in the next election. I mean, things haven't changed on that, have they? No, it, it, and, and it's- I mean, the issues have changed, but we're going to get the same. So your bigger question though, I mean, other things are genuinely political. You can't take politics out of things because many issues in British public life are not simply technocratic. There's not an obvious objective answer. It's about choices and trade-offs and lesser evils. You're always sacrificing mm. something. You're have, always deciding what you want to prioritize. You know, I feel this in a very granular way when I was the flooding minister, where there was no simple engineering solution. You were weighing up the interests of a downstream community against an upstream community, of against the company that's trying to prevent drought against the company that's trying to prevent flooding. You're trying to deal with rewilding moves. You're trying to deal with farmers growing crops. And this stuff needs politicians. Um, here's, a, here's a question from Clement, or Clement. I often hear about whips. What do they do exactly? How does the whip whip? Do Tory whips and Labour whips behave in the same way? What does the three-line whip mean? <laughs> The whips love to think, they, they like people to think that you're not allowed to know how they work, but actually it's not that complicated. They're there to instill discipline. They're there to make sure that their parties support their party's positions. And obviously that's most important for the government because the government's trying to get legislation through. Yeah, just to, just, just, just to give people a, a, a glimpse of who these people are, they are elected MPs, but they choose to enter a very strange unit in the House of Commons. They don't choose, Rory. They get appointed. Well, they get appointed, yeah. they, they would choose to be in the cabinet, but they're <laughs> not deemed good well, enough. Well, for some of them, it's, it's a route to promotion. But anyway, that once you've agreed to become a whip, you basically have taken off in a vow of silence. You're not really allowed to speak much in the House of Commons. And your attention is focused very much on trying to make your own party vote the way that the leader wants. They're the kind of loyal 
as it were, dogs of God of the leader who are there to deliver mm. those votes. And they do it in many different ways. You get kind of, but you get sort of smooth ones who try to charm you. You get kind of rough and tough ones who try to physically manhandle you into the lobbies. You get very straightforward people who take you out for a, on the smoking terrace and have a cigarette and say, I just wish people would be sensible. There are many different tones and they actually have resources. I mean, they can also act sometimes as an HR or personnel department. They can theoretically help MPs who have mental health issues. They in the past have helped MPs even with financial issues, which gives them an enormous mm. amount of, of leverage and power. But they are central to the basic idea, which is that you vote for a government and you want that government to deliver its legislation. You don't want too many independent MPs around. I think they're also part of a two-way process. They are genuinely there in part to feed back to, it's often the chief whip that will give a minister or a prime minister very bad news about the way something is going down, you know, particularly in circumstances where there's a, a small majority. Um, but I, I, you know, and the, the other thing I think people maybe underestimate in, in British politics, this may have changed because I, I think things have become more polarized. But I think certainly when I was both when I was a journalist and when I was um, working in for the Labour Party and the Labour government, you tended to have pretty good relations between certainly between the chief whips and other other parts of the whips operations, because a lot of it is about doing deals to get the business of the commons through without as with minimum fuss. And that's what sometimes there's, there's a shared interest in doing that. Um, last question. Uh, so we wrap up. What would you like to see last question? Shola Ameobi. Could we ask Rory why he thinks Southgate can't find a way to utilize Phil Foden? That's a really, really good question. I, I've got a lot of questions for you like that and a Grealish question too. I must say, I'm encouraged by you and by you sending me an amazing piece of Welsh nationalist propaganda around the Welsh team. I did watch oh, the, it was fantastic, the England-US match. And I must say, it was pretty dismal. I mean, I thought America seemed it was awful, much yeah. more but kind Rory, of sprightly. Rory, I could have told you not to watch that. I, should, I could have told you <laughs> that you should have watched Costa Rica, Saudi Arabia. No, um, yeah, that was possibly the worst game of the tournament so far. I strongly recommend that you that you stick with it. And, you know, top tip from you, Gunn, who are we, who are we supposed to be betting on? I, I, I think it's between Brazil and France. Very good. Okay, I'm going Brazil. Probably, fr probably I'm, France. I'm, I'm going Brazil. You're going France. Let's see, listeners, which one of us is right. <laughs> Thank you all very much and see you all next week. All the best. Bye-bye.